I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Just before we start, I should let you know that today's podcast contains discussions about sex and some explicit descriptions of violent porn. Do you want to sit down? Yeah, yeah, why not? Relax. Might be less awkward. (laughs) Might also be less awkward. That's Helen Rumbelow, a features writer at The Times. And we're about to log on to Pornhub together. Are we sitting comfortably? Uh, Yeah, very comfortable. (laughs) In fact, this is the first time I've actually met Helen. So looking at one of the world's most popular porn sites, which figures suggest half of all men in the UK have been on, is, well, a fairly unusual way to get acquainted. This is literally what I did. I'm just going to type in Pornhub. Okay. And you just click on it. There is a reason for all this, though. Helen was talking me through a fascinating recent article of hers in which she took a deep dive into the world of hardcore porn. Before we even look, Mm. the first thing that I found weird was how easily you get on. I find it weird that you find that weird, but I guess I'm... Well, I mean, so many sites, you have to at least tick a box. Mm. Oh, yeah. Or... You agree to cookies or something. Here, it's just like, wham. Straight in. And it's even weirder on your phone, I think, because Mm. it's like, I kind of slap in the face. But yeah, you're straight into this really like, I mean, look at that. There's just graphic content. Helen had sat down one Monday morning because she wanted to know exactly what young teenagers are actually looking at. But she was soon affronted by what she saw on her laptop. Instantly accessible to anyone, anywhere. I mean, we're just looking at these thumbnails. A lot of the time, you might look at them and think, oh, they're fairly benign. But actually, when you start watching, they become quite violent quite quickly. Were you quite shocked the first time? couple of times you logged on to the, I mean some of these images are actually really expressive aren't they They're, it's really uh, but expressive. Were, were you quite shocked at what you were seeing yeah I'm looking at it but I'm also thinking the average age of kids watching porn in Britain now you know something like 12 13 and I'm thinking about being that kid and coming straight on and seeing this there's no sort of you know there's no ease in This month, the Children's Commissioner released a report which analysed case files of sexual abuse between under-18s in England. In half the cases, violent acts in porn were referenced. The Commissioner, Dame Rachel D'Souza, is calling for the online safety bill, which is expected to finally become law at some point this year, to have robust age verification on adult content. So, are the waters between consensual sex and violence being muddied? You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm Josh Glancy, Special Correspondent at The Sunday Times. Today, 
what hardcore porn is doing to a generation of teenagers. My name is Helen Rumbelow and I'm a feature writer for The Times. And I've been reading your stuff for as long as I can remember. How long have you been writing features for The Times? I have been at The Times about 26 years, but a feature writer for about 10. What type of stories do you generally work on? It really could be anything, anything that's interesting in the culture right now. Okay, let's take a step back for a moment. Why did you start looking into this particular story about porn? Yeah, so the last couple of months, I'd been doing a lot of research into the online world of teens. Basically, I have teenagers. And in doing that, a lot of these researchers started talking to me about porn and the effects of porn. There's all this stigma and secrecy about it. So while it is this enormous section of the internet now and, you know, fills the heads of so many young people, we don't go on and take a look and have an informed debate. Because there is still that slight taboo around talking about sex, totally. isn't there? Totally. And people either don't watch porn or they watch it and they won't want to admit it. Mm. There was a particular report as well, wasn't there, that caught your interest? Yeah. There was a study by the Children's Commissioner, and this is on in the context of the online safety bill, which is rumbling its way through mm. Parliament. But, Quite um, slowly. Very slowly. Um, But she looked at 500 case files of sexual abuse between under-18s and found porn was really quite a big influence. About 50% of those cases referred to sexual violence that comes from pornography. So that's obviously quite troubling. There have been others that have have revealed similar issues around porn, haven't there? Yes, definitely. There was one by the NSPCC that found one in 10 school children aged 12 to 13 were worried they were already addicted to porn. There's been another, 2016, the Journal of Interpersonal Violence looked at almost 5,000 teenage boys, 14 to 17, and the more they watched porn, the more likely they were to be sexually coercive. Right. So it found a a direct link between porn consumption and sexually troubling behaviour, I suppose. Yeah, I mean, it's been really difficult for researchers to pin that down. Yeah. Um, I mean, they say we can't do a random control trial. We can't give one section of teenagers a whole load of porn to watch and none to the other. But I think what we can say for sure is that these behaviours that first began in porn are starting to show up like choking and slapping the bbc did a study recently which showed that this really large proportion of 20 something women had experienced a man trying to choke or strangle them in sex i think women that age have now started to expect it and view it almost as normal and i think it's just completely bizarre for anyone older i mean some people will call that a moral panic i mean can we draw a direct line from teens watching hardcore stuff on Pornhub to the choking that happens in the bedroom. Yeah, I mean, the researchers I spoke to said this is like almost, you know, when they release a bunch of sort of plastic ducks and it allows them Mm. to sort of track tidal currents across, Mm -hmm. you know, the oceans. Right. They were like choking, hair pulling. It wasn't a thing 
insects. It was in the kind of outer fringes of sort of BDSM or whatever. Suddenly, it's mainstream in porn. And then literally a few years down the line, it it turns up in every young person's bedroom in the UK. Okay, so let's pause for a moment and go back to the beginning or back to the beginning of your arc on this. There's a key moment for you. We go back to May 1999 and you're a young reporter and this comes into your orbit. What happened? Yeah, so this looks like I'm absolutely obsessed with porn. (laughs) (laughs) But I I did realise when I was doing this story that I had actually reported on porn, a quite key moment in porn before. And that was when I was in my 20s in the newsroom of The Times. I had come across this story and it was basically a battle for hardcore. So then, this is how different the landscape was, but then there was no real sex or penetrative sex that was allowed in the UK. So porn videos weren't allowed to show it. So and even if you went into a you know a dirty shop in Soho and bought a porn video, they wouldn't be showing you penetration. No. So that's hard were, for me to imagine. I know. Way. These were very sweet times. Mm. Yeah, and I think, you know, obviously there was some kind of black market trade or whatever, but mm. what was allowed legally was very gentle and Mm. probably, you know, similar to what we'd see on Netflix now, to Mm. be honest. But that was to change because even though the BBFC, the censors essentially, were fighting to keep the status quo, the government via the Home Office wanted to liberalise and it was um, over a particular video called Making Whoopee. And I watched it and it was, as you'd expect, a kind of, quite a joyful, you know, romp in the hay type Mm. of thing. And all these kind of eminent people on the Home Office Committee said, it's fine. It's a woman enjoying her sexuality. She's adult. There's no violence. Let's go for it. And it was part of a spirit, really, that was around in this kind of Blairite Britain, coincided with this group of sort of young women that I think then they were called post-feminists, myself included, that felt, you know, we'd sort of done feminism and we liked men, we liked enjoying our bodies, you know, there was the lads' mags. It was quite a sort of unthoughtful time or uncritical time. So there was a sense almost that the big battles had been won and you could afford to have a bit of a bit of fun with it at this point. Exactly. And these kind of porn-denouncing writers, quite often American, very much first-wave old-school feminists, mm. You know, I remember reading them and looking at them and thinking, oh, they're no fun. Dinosaurs. Yeah. We don't need them. We're here, you know, we're equal and we're enjoying sex just as much as the men. So the Home Office overrules the British Board of Film Classification. It is an interesting marker for what happened next. That's the, the, the floodgates were opened at that moment. The floodgates were opened and I think that, you know, the old school feminists lost the battle, really. Mm. And actually... Um, you know, the decision really was just symbolic because very soon the internet would just completely circumvent any kind of government legislation anyway. And and your point about the internet is is quite critical because I remember when I was about 12 or 13 and we would go on file-sharing sites like LimeWire and download pornographic images. But even that 
then looks relatively quaint to what then happened in 2007 when Pornhub's launched. Yeah, and I think, you know, people also perhaps underestimate the size of the porn industry. They make absolutely multi-multi-millions of dollars every year. When Pornhub comes on the scene, I don't recall there being any real debate about that. It seems to have just happened. That doesn't. It seems like only now we're sort of starting to sift through the effects of that, but it, it sort of happened almost without anyone noticing to me. I totally agree. I think this thing has just happened just behind this big curtain. I think it's partly people are a bit worried to be called prudes, and that's just given porn such a free pass. Mm. I mean, this really struck me um, that this kind of degradation of women, if it was in any other context, you know, mm. I think we would really be way more outraged but it's on the porn site so it's it's fine when you were first thinking about porn you you wanted to be quite open-minded and modern about it if you like but do you now start to think maybe some of those grouchy old first wave feminists had a point Yes. And um, I look back now, you know, the most influential writer for me was Andrea Dworkin. And she was very much vilified at the time. The landscape was not nearly as violent as it is now. And her focus was on porn as male supremacy and that it, you know, glorified in female pain. And that certainly wasn't something that I recognised at that time. But I, I certainly coming off Pornhub. I literally went straight back to Andrea Dworkin. And I thought, you really predicted all this. Mm. I definitely gained respect for her and I worried about human nature more. Okay, so since 2007, we've had Pornhub, which we've obviously discussed, and there are a whole sort of cornucopia of other sites. So we have this generation of young boys growing up watching this stuff. I wonder if you could just talk us through, I mean, what is the stuff they're watching? Was there one video that you saw that, that particularly shocked or affected you? Yeah, there were a couple. There was one which I looked at, which was a very young-looking girl, very slim. So there was slapping, hitting, rough hair pulling. But there was this one particular section which was really hard to watch, which was involved what is known in porn as facial abuse, I don't want to go into it in too much detail, but it's essentially like a kind of choking with a penis. The woman is struggling to breathe, often retching, maybe nearly vomiting. And during that process, the guy then closes her nostrils. So she's essentially being suffocated. I was watching this and I was like, this isn't. This really isn't sex. This is well, violence. In any other context, we would see that as violence yes. immediately. Yeah. And there was then another one. It was a teen babysitter. And she was just put through a succession of these very, you know, rough sex acts. It's one of these ones where it sort of gets more and more grueling. You can see... The distress on her face, she's basically tearful and at one stage she is saying, please. And I think to the man who is doing these things to her, that was interpreted as a sexual overture. 
But I, I genuinely was like, this looks like she's begging for her life. Some, some of these videos have comments underneath them. Do, do, do people, yeah. Was anyone raising concerns about this? The first comment at that one that I just spoke about, the first comment was, wow, so passionate. Right. Mm. And, and how did that affect you? Because I can even hear now, weeks later, you're still quite affected by that. I was really affected. And I, I think um, part of it, you feel like you are in this very confusing territory where something is presented to you as pleasurable. And yet the things that are going on are really dark. And you can't say to yourself, this isn't happening, because you can see it is really mm. happening. And even when you're watching a horror film, you know, you know cognitively that this isn't real, it's yes. fake blood, it's a fake knife, and you kind of calm yourself down like that, don't you? Whereas this was way more confusing. Yes, they're performing, and yes, you hope they're being paid and they're consenting to this filming, but it's real. Like, mm. the degradation is real. You can see the marks of the slapping. You can see someone retching. It's not a stunt. Did you find yourself almost replaying some of those images in your head, also, or the sort of concern around them <laughs> for days afterwards? I had this really traumatic experience watching these videos. And then, literally, it was kind of the day was ended by my teenagers coming back from school. Right. And I'm like... I'm not talking about this with them. This is way too dark. But I was identifying with a teenager. They're not going to... There's nowhere they can go if they see something really upsetting. They're not going to say to someone, oh my God, I just had the most horrible experience on Pornhub. You know, it's very isolating. You can't debrief. You know, you can't talk mm. about it. Because like the taboos we have around talking about sex allow this, creates almost a void in which this nastiness can thrive really. totally and they're getting away with this nastiness because we're not talking about mm. it yeah coming up we look further into the effects hardcore porn is having on young boys and helen talks about the online backlash to her article 10 they will have access to like an infinite amount of it. This is opening a portal. Now, obviously, one concern is the people who are making this stuff, particularly the young women. But another concern is what it actually does to these 
mostly young boys who are watching it. How much do we actually know about that? I mean, it's, it strikes me as a slightly difficult thing to to research in a way. As you say, there's a taboo around it. But how, how much do we know about what it's doing to young mind? They do look at associations, basically. So they have shown in study after study, the more you watch porn, the more likely you are to kind of exhibit these kind of porn-related behaviour. Mm. So they've they've got as far as that. This is still such a new phenomenon. We can see anecdotally and in these kind of initial studies that something's happening. But really, this is the first generation really happening, you know, people in their teens and 20s now who are experiencing this. Mm. And there was one particular researcher I think you spoke to who has done quite a lot of work on this. Yeah, so Professor Fiona Vera Gray is a, well, at the time of her research, she was a law professor at Durham. She's now leading a unit at London Met University. She said that the videos shown to first-time porn users could be significantly implicated in muddying the waters between consensual and sexual violence. Mm. And she actually said that the thing that I did, which I thought was a pretty weird thing for a kind of mum to do on a Monday morning, (laughs) she said parents should go on and Mm. have a look at what's there. Not just parents, but policymakers and teachers. You know, you've got to see what kids are watching. Yeah. And, you know, take the shame and stigma and eroticism out of it. It should be a cold light of day. Like, this should be examined like any other medium would be. Did you come to conclude that this really is warping young boys' kind of sexual identities and sexual behaviour? It's really complicated, isn't it? Because on the one hand, we can see this association with sexual violence. But on the other hand, there's also some research which shows that it's actually completely terrifying boys and possibly girls Mm. about the prospect of sex. And people who work with porn addiction, and remember we said that 10% of 12-year-olds are worried they are porn addicted, said that a lot of the time this shows up as actually erectile dysfunction Mm. because it gets to the stage where real life humans just don't do it for them anymore. Interesting. So it's it's not necessarily just that people are reenacting these things, but actually it can damage ordinary sexual encounters for them as well. Yeah, IRL, exactly. as they would say. Yeah. So some people will look at pornography today, and particularly the hardcore porn that you've been researching, and say, well, twas ever thus. The male libido is a dark, a dark thing, and men have been violent to women throughout history. Is porn really making it worse? What do you think about that? Yeah, this... This is a kind of uh, argument that's used by a lot of pro-porn mm. defenders that porn belongs in its own protected category. You know, it's basically like fiction, creativity, and you can't police it. It's desire, and that is... The basis of de- desire is often taboo things. You would never act out in real life. I do sympathise with that view. I sort of understand it. But I think what's shown on Pornhub is almost like propaganda for misogyny, I think. It's not that we allow all kinds of fiction to be published. We don't. There are things that we don't publish. There are restrictions we put on Mm. creativity. 
I mean, when my piece was published, I did get quite a lot of pushback on Twitter and other places, mm. you know, with people saying, oh, this is my kink. You can't take away my kink. And their kink was, you know, violence to women. But it's all a balance of harms, isn't it? There has been an argument that porn has allowed people to explore sexual identities potentially in ways that may be difficult for them. There's obviously a lot of gay porn, a lot of lesbian porn, trans porn. There are kinks, not all of them involve misogyny. And that for people with non-mainstream identities, it can be quite helpful in some ways. I mean, what do you make of that? Yes, and I have actually just spoken to someone who's one of the leading players in the ethical porn industry. Helen spoke with Erica Lust, which I'm guessing is not her birth name, who is one of the leading makers of so-called ethical porn. Erica has set up her own non-violent alternative pornography, which is made with mostly female directors. I really was quite persuaded by her. But you get to this contradiction here because the ethical porn sites will age verify mm. and they will ask you to pay mm. because what they do is expensive. It's good quality. And that means teenagers can't see it. So they're forced to the trash end of the market. Mm. So I guess what inevitably this conversation leads us to in the end is what what can be done about this. We obviously, in theory, don't want young people watching hardcore porn. That seems fairly self-evident. But in terms of legislation, is it cultural change? Is it about parents taking responsibility? I mean, what are the kind of formal and informal changes that we might be able to make? Yeah, I mean, Britain is actually trying something really unusual with their online safety bill. So that is fairly pioneering for a country to try and do something about porn and young people. They're, they're going to try and age verify, but they have a whole load of technical problems, mm. which I think you'll know any teen can kind of outfox an adult technically, mm. but you know, you, you can, there's all kinds of workarounds to it. The other big one is to make people pay. Mm. So that is another way of restricting access to kids. But yeah, in general, I think sunlight is kind of the best disinfectant. Mm. The question I now have to ask you is, sunlight is the best disinfectant. Have you spoken to your own teenage children about all of this? Or do you just tell them to read your articles instead? <laughs> I think any child of a journalist will know that any child of a journalist doesn't read their articles. So no, they don't read what I write. I think I'm a bit worried I've become that sort of really weird mum who's always talking about it. Um, I'm sort of Barbara Streisand in Meet the Fockers. Right. Um, I'm, yeah, they're like, oh, stop talking about porn. Have you asked your son if he if he uses this stuff? Oh, God. I know. I, that... It's a bridge too far. <laughs> he would, yeah, he would. Uh... I mean, it is, yeah, it is hard to talk about. But if you can't, if, if you, the porn mum who who has looked into this and really thought about it and written about it, can't ask him. Mm. What does that say for other mums? Well, why do you think it's such a hard barrier to cross? Yeah. And I also, I was actually quite struck by, when I was researching this, I saw this study which was like about parents talking about porn and how reluctant they are. But they said, 
dads never talk about porn. You know, mums, I think perhaps they're a little bit more worried about the effect on women, so perhaps they're a bit more willing. But if it's anyone, it's the mums and the dads are much less likely to talk about porn. So, um, you know, maybe it, you need the fun uncle or whatever to come in and take the sting out of it. Yeah, it's almost striking as a job for a sort of 20-something male who's yeah. old enough to be experienced but young enough to, to not be embarrassing. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's also difficult for kids, isn't it? Because the worst sound in the world is your parents having sex. Oh, yeah. And I remember watching Pretty Woman as a kid with my parents and being highly, highly embarrassed by the whole thing. Yeah. Well, God, Pretty Women's its own bag of worms, right? That, <laughs> that, that wouldn't fly today. No, God, it really wouldn't. While making this episode, we got in touch with Pornhub and put Helen's concerns to them. Pornhub say they have several measures in place to protect the well-being of performers and denied that any of them looked like they were in distress or performing acts that are violent. They also denied any suggestion of misogyny and say they have the most comprehensive safeguards in user-generated platform history. You've been listening to Stories of Our Times, a podcast brought to you thanks to subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times, with me, Josh Glancy, special correspondent at The Sunday Times, and my guest, Helen Rumbelow, features writer at The Times. If you're already a subscriber, you can find Helen's recent articles on hardcore porn, and we've put a link to them in the description notes of the podcast. They really are a thought-provoking, if somewhat challenging, read. The producer of this podcast was Will Rowe. The executive producer is Kate Ford. And sound design was by John Scott. Thanks for listening and see you again soon. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.